Okay. Okay, so just some basics about humanistic theory is that um, the, the things that it uh, uh, really emphasizes is, is the capacity of personal growth, uh, free will, the freedom to choose one's destination and focus on the positive of human qualities. Um, and probably one of the most important aspects of humanistic theory is the approach feels that each individual already has the capacity to solve a problem, it's really the job of the therapist to bring that solution out based on providing the, the most ideal situation for a human to really grow and develop. Um, so, but let's talk about humanistic approach uh, and where it came from. One, it, it really started in about the 1950s, 1960s with a person named Carl Rogers um, and Abraham Maslow. And during this time, we were just coming out of you know, World War II, we were entering the Korean War, Vietnam was right on the uh, cusp of, of beginning. Uh, again, we just got through World War I, World War II, uh, and just before World War I here in the United States, we just really got out of this, uh, the, the consequences of the Civil War. And so at the time, there was a lot of notion that we exist in just a very chaotic and a world that doesn't make much sense. Um, and and, and uh, there was a lot of questioning about it. And so, um, and so, um, what what really was promoted at the time was something called existentialism. And to kind of uh, describe what existentialism is, um, is it's this philosophy that uh, we're all born in this chaotic world that really makes no sense. It's just chaos. And we're born into this chaotic world. And in order to make sense of this world, we create institutions such as governments, uh, religion, education, to try and make sense and provide meaning to the world. Okay. Now, where this point comes important is that if we were born with meaning, okay, we can't have something we call free will. Because if humans, according to existentialism, if we're, if we're born with some purposeful meaning, then we're not really making the choices that are necessary to be who we are that really in order to have true free will, we have to be born into a meaningless society, a meaningless place, okay? Now, that's a little extreme version of free will, but it's kind of where humanistic theory is gonna grow out of. Now, at the same time, people like Abraham Maslow and, and Carl Rogers were really frustrated by uh, uh, 
philosophies or, or camps within psychology. At the time, we had the, the psychoanalysts who, uh, and the behavioral movement, which we'll get to in a minute, but the idea behind the behavioral movement is that we are a consequences of our environment and our behavior to that environment, that we are all a product of just learned behavior through life. Well, in both of these theories, there's no room for human motivation because everything we do is predetermined. In psychoanalysis, it's predetermined by our unconscious. In behaviorism, our behavior is predetermined by a uh, lifelong series of responses to our environment that we really don't choose who we're going to become or where we're gonna go. Life is going to determine that for us. And the humanists were really kind of, say, didn't like that idea. And so existentialism gave them kind of a philosophy to build on. And the basis of humanistic theory is we're born with free will, but we have the motivation to become a whole and complete person, to understand oneself completely in, of course, this world that is chaotic. And so that's kind of the philosophy behind humanism. Um, and it really emphasizes the individual's potential for growth, given that they have the ability to seek out who they are as a complete and total person. So from that, we have, well, hold on. Okay. From that, we have now what's going to be the development of humanistic theory. And the first one is going to come from Abraham Maslow. Now, everyone's probably heard of Maslow from Psych 101 or you've ever taken an HR class or, or any of your social work classes, you've probably heard of this theory, the pyramid of needs. And what Maslow's going to argue is that you must have these first four needs met in order to become what he's gonna call self-actualized, which is being basically a complete person but I, I'm gonna use Roger's definition of self-actualization to really define what it is. But let's get through the first four basic needs that people have to have met and they all have to be in line in order to become what he calls self-actualized. So the first one is we have to have our physiological needs met. So that's food, water, warmth, rest, all of the biological necessities to keep the body running. If we have those met, then we need to our safety needs met. This is security. This is feeling safe where we're at. Once we have our biological and we feel like we're safe, we then go into belonging and love needs. This is intimate relationships, friends, family, and those type of relationships. 
And then the last need that Maslow argued is that we need our esteem need, needs met. I mean, we, we have to feel some type of accomplishment. We have to have a good self-esteem about ourselves. We, we, we feel like we're worthy of something in some way, okay? So if all of these needs are met, then we can have the potential to become what he called self-actualized, which in here it's a, uh, defined as achieving one's full potential, including creative creativity and activities. Now, if you really think about this pyramid, though, and you think about social work and case management as an example, these are really the basis of a good psychosocial assessment. When we assess somebody, we usually look in all four of these areas. We make sure that they have access to food, employment, uh, clean drinking water, a place to rest, a place to have warmth. We look at their safety needs. Is there violence in the home? Is, do they live in a violent neighborhood? What is the school safety? What is the work safety? Are all those safety needs being met? And then we ask about their relationships. Do they have a good intimate relationships? Do they have friends that they can rely on and friends that rely on them? What is their family relationships? What is their relationships with their parents and siblings? And we look at that. And then we look at their esteem needs. Do they have, you know, how do they feel about themselves? Do they have depressive or anxious um, uh, behaviors and thoughts? Um, do they have addictive uh, uh, tendencies that might mask any of the other problems, okay? And that is really, if you think about it, the basis of a good psychosocial assessment and really what we should be providing for all our clients. Because as Maslow stated, if you don't feel safe, if you don't feel safe, for example, you're not gonna be able to focus on relationships or yourself. If you're homeless, you're not gonna feel safe for one, and two, you're not gonna be able to fully develop really good relationships and healthy relationships, and your esteem is really going to be hit hard, okay? And so, all of these, according to Maslow, need to be taken care of in order for us to really move forward, to really uh, exceed uh, in life. So, but, so what is though self-actualization? And I'm going to use Roger's uh, term for self-actualization. Self-actualization, according to Rogers, is the complete and total acceptance of oneself. And what I mean by this is it's not just, I like myself, I have good qualities, I, you know, I'm a good father, I'm a good uh, educator, blah, blah, blah. No, this is complete acceptance of yourself, not only the good qualities, but acceptance of all the bad qualities that you may have, all of the deficits that you may have. You accept those as part of you. And yes, you work on those, but you don't deny them as being a part of who you are. You don't hide them. You don't not give them recognition, okay? Now, if 
you think about it, this is, again, the basis of, the, of where we need to be as good helpers. Because if we can accept ourselves completely and totally, we have the ability to give what Rogers called unconditional positive regard for everyone else. Meaning, if we accept us, we can accept other people for their strengths, their weaknesses, and everything in between. Meaning that we can accept them unconditionally, okay? Now, if you think about a complete self-actualized person, this is a person who exists basically without prejudices, okay? This is the therapist who can work with, for example, a pedophile. This is a, uh, a, a counselor who can work with a murderer or a batterer. Why? Because they understand that those are qualities of a person that, yes, they need to work on and, yes, you need to help with, but it is a part of who they are. But that doesn't make that, that's not the complete story of that person. It's just one aspect of who they are. And there's other aspects that as a counselor or a helper, you can build on to then assist with the negative aspects of that individual, okay? And unconditional positive regard is a term we're gonna to return to again and again and again in this class because to be an effective facilitator, you have to be able to accept your clients for who they are and provide an environment that is non-judgmental, that no judgment exists between you and your client, okay? Now, this becomes difficult in, in, in many situations, for example, in child protection cases and those types of things where social workers are asked to make a judgment on safety and whatnot. But just because you have to make those decisions doesn't mean that you can't continue to accept and work with those people or those families that need help, if that makes sense, okay? So there's some other concepts that uh, Rogers came up with. We'll come back to this. And that's the difference between an ideal self and a real self, okay? And I bring this up because it's really a good way to gauge where your clients are at, okay? The ideal self is that person that we think we ought to be. So that is the super mom, uh, the super dad, the uh, employee of the month every month, the A plus student, the, all those things, the, the rock star, uh, if you want to put it that way. Okay, that's the ideal type self. And then there's the real self. And the real self is who you are existing in the world as a human being, as an individual. Okay. And what Rogers found, and we found in research that since then, is the further apart the ideal self is from the real self, we see higher levels of dysfunction, higher level, levels of things like addictive behaviors, uh, uh, eating disorders, depression symptoms, anxiety symptoms, and even in some research, it, 
it even uh, affects things like post-traumatic stress and those types of disorders. And when, and the job, according to Rogers, what our job really is, is to bring that ideal self and that real self together. Now, this doesn't mean the person becomes that ideal self. It means you get to a point where you're real about who you are as an individual and what your capacities are to be who you can be. Um, and so that, according to Rogers, that is really the job that we are doing as counselors and helpers and social workers and group facilitators is bringing those two selves into alignment with each other, okay? So just a concept that's important. So now what came out of Roger's work and based on Maslow's is this idea of the person-centered theory. And this is a theory that the only, that really the therapist really doesn't matter, that really the job of the therapist is to set up an environment that allows an individual to explore, to come to some, um, to release whatever's blocking them from finding the solution to their problem. That's pure person-centered therapy. It's all about the individual. Unlike the other theories such as psychoanalysis where it's about the therapist and the therapist knowledge, or even about cognitive behavioral therapy where it's about you providing techniques as a professional to help the individual overcome whatever they're doing. In pure person-centered theory, therapy, it's all about assisting the individual in coming to some solution. So if you've ever watched those uh, sitcoms where the counselor is sitting there and, and the person will say something and go, oh, well, how does that make you feel? And then the client might ask, well, what do you think? And the therapist re replies with, well, it really doesn't matter what I think. What do you think? And they never really provide an answer. They just continue to have the person have this conversation with themselves that then ultimately will end in the person understanding what, what's going on in their life and kind of come to that aha moment, okay? Now, just on the onset, as I said, uh, pure person-centered uh, therapy, really, it, it's used, uh, but not a lot. Usually it's in combination with some cognitive behavioral therapy or some other type of therapy. But as I said in the beginning, most treatments start with a person-centered approach because in the first sessions, even in the group setting, it should be all about uh, a relationship building and really developing the word, if we want to call it, trust and providing an environment for a client that is unbiased, and unless it has to do with a legal reason for disclosing confidential information, that the person feels that what they state in that situation 
will be received, it won't be judged upon, and that uh, they can say whatever it is they want to say, okay? And that's this idea, as I said, of unconditional positive regard, okay? And again, it's accepting the values and being positive towards another person's behaviors and emotions, okay? And what uh, really during the, the, the sessions is that we want to have two basic assumptions. One, we have what are called formative tendencies. Now, there is a tendency within nature for anything simple to become more and more complex. So we see single-celled organisms that then evolve into uh, multiple-celled organisms, which then goes into a more of a species and then a brain. And, and so everything has this tendency to go from simple to complex. And we also have what are called actualizing tendencies. And this is the human tendency to move towards completion and fulfillment of our potentials. And these tendencies get stuck through life's difficulties, through uh, getting into addiction because of, of, of what's going wrong in the world, because of race, relationship problems, because of legal problems, because of, you know, all of those uh, four areas that we just went through with Maslow's theory. And it's the job of, again, the therapist to bring out and get people moving along these tendencies to understand themselves as a full and complete person. person. All right. So again, we're going to come back to humanistic theory in a while, especially when we get to facilitation skills and relationship building. But at this moment, just in this introduction, does anybody have any questions about humanistic theory? Fine, you have your hand up. Uh, yes, the part of dealing with self and real self. I, I tend to uh, see that in my line of work. We have people who want, you know, I, I work with dads and they want to be that the ideal, the ideal dad that is loving carrying and a provider versus the one that has just gotten into treatment that is the complete opposite and getting them these two you might say two um selves together to a point where they achieve what they want to become it is how i i vision it when you were talking about that Klein, that's a perfect description, and you're absolutely right. Is what our what our job is is to have that person and those people in the group setting, right, to really come to understand what what they can be, but in a realistic way, right, and in, in, in the real world, 
Um, and as an example, I, I, I work with female uh, offenders who um, oftentimes uh, make claims that they are great and wonderful mothers. And uh, um, while you can see the disconnect in that in the real world, given that they were incarcerated. And so it's coming to understand. So where are we being a good parent and where can we build on that in the real world that we exist in, in that, in that space where we have it? Because we can't continue kind of the illusion that we're the greatest parent in the world when we're having life difficulties, um, in this case, incarceration, in your case, that with dads coming into your groups, without making sure that we know that we're operating within a real world if that makes sense. So great example there. Um, very good, okay. Any other questions on, on this? And Klein, did I, did I elaborate on your, your, your situation correctly? Uh, yes, thank you. All right, so let's move on to behavioral approaches. And, and, and in this initial uh, lectures, we're separating behavioral approaches from cognitive approaches, but we will combine them into uh, what's called cognitive behavioral therapy or cognitive behavioral approach. But just as kind of a pure theory, uh, I want to start with these as two separate types of, of um, events. Behavioral approaches really ignore uh, uh, what goes on inside of the mind. What it pays attention to is the environment, such as a triggering event, and the given behavior of the individual, okay? And so what really uh, behavioral approach is, is it's about modification of a given behavior. Because when we have a triggering event and, that, and then we have a behavior and that behavior is rewarded, we increase the likelihood of that behavior occurring in the future. If it's punished, quote unquote, we reduce the likelihood of that behavior occurring in the future, okay? So probably um, where, where behavioral approach has been used the most is in things like relapse prevention, okay? And, and this example comes from one of the approaches that um, it was used in the correction system that I worked in is what we do is we have the individual have a journal of some type. And every time they get a craving for their addiction, which I will denote by a C, they look around them and they try to determine what is triggering that craving, okay? Um, and so, you know, a, an example could be, even though we know triggers are much more complex than this, this is just a simple example. So uh, a person uh, is running, driving home and, and he passes by a certain street 
And all of a sudden he starts getting cravings. So what his job would be in that moment is to stop and look around his environment and try to determine what was triggering that behavior. And let's say that um, on this particular corner, there is um, a bar. Uh, and maybe, and sometimes, and I'll tell you this, sometimes that's not an immediate realization that it was something as kind of quote unquote obvious as a bar for an alcoholic to trigger at. Sometimes it takes a while to really understand what was really triggering. But so, so then we realize that we have a craving and that's going to result in a behavior. In this case, it's going to a, a result in the addictive behavior. So they go, they stop, they get a drink and we know what's rewarded within addiction. It's really the brain areas of, of the person that are, that's rewarded. It can be uh, uh, doling a trigger, okay? So for example, um, you know, some addicts might trigger to, to uh, uh, something happening at work. Maybe the boss was a jerk or maybe it's the kids being overwhelming at the house or something like that. And for a lot of drugs, it dulls that, that, that experience, which is rewarding, which will increase the likelihood that that behavior will be um, done in the future, okay? And, and for addiction, this is what makes punishment a little bit uh, uh, different is because being arrested or, or uh, getting in trouble with a spouse or a girlfriend or a boyfriend or something, not always is a punishment for, for someone who has addiction, okay? Um, it is really that reward system that that certain substance provides, okay? Um, and so we gotta keep that in mind when we're dealing with this type of, of, of work, okay? Uh, in fact, uh, in one of the behavioral approaches that you utilize medical, um, they use a substance that uh, when the person takes that addictive substance, it makes them nauseous. So that creates a punishment uh, situation, which theoretically decreases the, the likelihood of using in the future. So that's an example of something that needs to intervene on the substance in order to make it so it's not used anymore, okay? So really what um, behavioral uh, approach is, is we try to stop the behavior right here, okay? And so, for example, going back to our, our example, so we will want the person to change their behavior in some way. So in the example of driving home and, and driving by a bar and having a craving, then we tell, the, we tell the person, well, next time take a different route home. Find a route that doesn't go by somewhere that you commonly went to when you, you were doing, uh, when you were actively using and those types of things. So this is really the behavioral approach and really just to summarize it is what we look is for environmental triggers that initiate a behavior that then, uh, that, that usually is the addictive type of behavior in that example. And then we look at the reward and punishment system for that. 
okay? And this gives us a second point of intervention. Because then if they go through the addictive process, then we want to not have a reward for it, but there needs to be something that counteracts that drug um, in order to make it less tolerable, okay, in, in, in that kind of situation. Now, beyond uh, relapse prevention, this is a relapse prevention technique using behavioral approaches. Um, we do this uh, in depression. Uh, so for example, a person's depression is triggered. And so instead of having them doing ruminating and, and getting into the depressive symptoms, we have them do something instead, say yoga or call a, a friend or have them do something that then can diverts them from that depressive trigger. Okay, that's an example of uh, what you in mental health. Um, uh, same thing goes, uh, you know, in parenting classes. So a child acts out, um, and and you know sometimes that results the in the parent uh, uh, punishing or 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 punishing. And well, usually what when a parent punishes, they do it out of their own anger, not necessarily for the benefit of the child. So in that case, child acts out instead of immediately, you know, first we take care of the safety of the child, make sure they're in a safe place, but then we have parent go and have a cool off period and then return to the child to then, uh, you know, uh, or appropriately, deal with the misbehavior. Um, and so that's an example in parenting and working with children. So again, when we're talking about behavioral approaches, uh, you'll notice I didn't use the word thought processes. I didn't use the word feelings. I didn't use the word any, anything like that. We looked at a triggering event in the environment that triggered an individual that then results in a behavior that then goes into the, uh, in, you know, as the example, the addictive or depressive cycle, okay? So that's pure behavioral approaches. Does anybody have any questions about the pure behavioral approach? Okay. All right. So then the pure cognitive approach. <laughs> In this one, uh, it is a belief that it's actually our thoughts that trigger our behavior. So we're going to put another element in here. Is we have, again, usually we start with an environmental trigger that then triggers some type of thought process that then results in a behavior. And then unlike the behavioral approach where we talk about reward and punishment, we then go through a cognitive appraisal period where we, we usually what happens is we, rein, we reinforce those negative thoughts that then initiated that behavior uh, in the first place. So, um, I'll, I'll, I'll give a basic kind of example, and this is just a very basic. The boss yells at me, okay? So we'll put boss here, B for boss. The boss yells at me. 
my immediate thoughts might be, yes, I'm stupid. Yes, I'm worthless. I'm dumb. I'm, I, I'm no good. Um, um, I'm not worthy of anything. Okay, those are, you know, some, some thoughts that might have. And usually, now, those are really simple thoughts. Well, usually when we think about them, we reinforce those. So I'm useless because not only my boss tells me this, but, you know, my spouse says this about me all the time, uh, this, this, this. And we totally discount anything that does not reinforce that negative thought, okay? Those negative thoughts then result in some type of behavior. So maybe uh, for the addict, it can result in an addictive behavior of some type. For someone who is suffering from depression or anxiety, it can ignite a depressive symptoms or, or anxiety symptoms, okay? And then through that, we then go through an appraisal of the behavior, okay? And usually these behaviors will always reinforce the thoughts where we'll go, yep, okay, my behaviors prove it. I, I, I went and used again as an example, or, oh, yep, yeah, see, those, those I feel worthless. I, I ended up sleeping all day long, or I ended up uh, just giving up on work today, or, or it might be some type of panic attack, okay? And all of those negative things then reinforce those negative thoughts, okay? And those negative thoughts then, again, will get tied back to those triggers, okay? And so in this situation, it is the thought process, not the behavior itself, where we need to intercede, okay? Uh, when we uh, talked about defense mechanisms, um, often in the cognitive uh, literature, we, we call these uh, um, uh, thinking errors, uh, or, or those type, or, and we reword some of those, and we've actually added some thinking errors, such as all or nothing thinking, and, um, uh, and, and those types of, of things. And our job as a therapist is to then um, uh, provide a reevaluation of those negative thoughts. And then we put in and we and, and going back to the behavioral, we then put in some skills to help them stop those negative thoughts uh, from, from uh, influencing the behavior. And again, um, a, a pure cognitive approach that I've seen again, and this is going back to the uh, uh, in prison situation, is instead of using that behavioral approach, uh, what we do is we trigger, uh, again, this going with addiction, craving and once the person has that craving we have them write down shortly what the situation is I'm standing in line for example and so and so what by and then we have them instead of saying what their behaviors would be we say what were your thoughts what were the the immediate thoughts going through your head okay and we have them do this for hundreds of times and then what we do is we help the client develop themes about their thought processes. So theme one might be um, worthlessness, a, a lot of thoughts dealing with worthlessness or some other theme of concepts. 
And then we help the individual uh, have a realistic appraisal of those basic themes, okay? And so this is a much more bringing thought processes into play and, and whatnot. And so I'm trying to think if we, all right. And so today in, in modern times, as I said, we have something called CBT or what's called cognitive behavioral therapy. There's also something called cognitive emotive behavioral therapy, which brings in emotions as well. Um, and in a lot of, especially Western settings, the cognitive behavioral approach has been very successful um, compared to other approaches that are out there. But the CBT approach is combining thoughts and behaviors and reward and appraisal. So instead of only having one area of intervention, for example, with cognitive therapy, we only intervene on the thought area. By combining behavioral approaches, we now have two points of intervention. So if we can't stop it at the trigger point, okay, from having the craving in the first place, then we can try and help the client stop it at the thought process. And then if it goes further than that, then we can have some behavioral interventions that then can be used to try and, and, and not uh, get into, again, the depressive cycle, the addictive process, all of those different processes. And then we provide tools of how to realistically appraise the person's situation, okay? So that's a combination of both cognitive and behavioral approaches. The emotive approach also starts to bring in life history, life experience, um, people's uh, uh, really socio-emotional context as well. So that one even adds a little bit more um, to the situation, okay? So real quick, I just want to ask, are we okay with, at this point, again, this is just the very basics, the cognitive approach, the behavioral approach, and then a short little uh, additive about adding cognitive behavioral approach to it. Are we okay with this at this introductory point? Thank you, Tracy and Tamara. Jamie, okay, all right, all right. Now, the, the advantage, I will say, of using these methods in the group setting, again, if you've developed the relationship between yourself and the relationship between your participants in the group good enough and strong enough, is, uh, identifying triggers and thoughts and behaviors and whatnot can be done with group input, not just the input from the counselor. And a lot of times in a group setting using this cognitive behavioral approach, it actually has shown that having that peer feedback about thoughts and about behaviors and about triggers really can be a reinforcing 
uh, situation that one, I'm not the only one that thinks this way. Uh, I'm not the only one that has these kind of triggers and I'm not the only one that commits these behaviors and then appraise it in such a way that I continue this behavioral pattern. So in the group setting, uh, this approach can be used really well as long as the relationship has been developed in the group. And that's, again, that's why I go back to, again, the humanistic approaches and all those to establish that relationship. Um, CBT has found to be less effective when there isn't a good relationship between the client and the, the therapist or in the group setting, the facilitator and the client and the client with the other clients, okay? And so that's something to keep in mind when using these approaches. Um, I, 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 I've been in situations and, and then when I did clinical supervision, I always had a junior or novice uh, therapist wanting to go straight into the cognitive behavioral approach or straight into some of these other approaches and uh, it usually did not end well, unfortunately, intervention was necessary. So just kind of keep that in mind. Um, there are, and beyond these kind of psychologically developed uh, theories, I do just want to bring up some uh, um, uh, different approaches to helping behaviors that are more culturally based than they are uh, approaches. And I just want to bring them up because um, as a good counselor, you can access these different approaches uh, to help a person. Um, and, then, and, and then also knowing where it comes from uh, is important. So uh, the medical model is this uh, notion that um, uh, a person uh, who is injured, they go to the doctor, they receive some type of pill and they get better. Uh, that's the pure medical approach. And in our Western society, and this is really important to keep in mind as, as helpers, especially in the mental health field and in social work, a lot of times people come to us expecting this medical model that, that we're somehow going to just give them a magical pill or we're going to just uh, tell them what they need to do and, and, and they will get better, okay? And that's really unfortunate uh, because we know change. Many of you in here have gone through a lot of change processes and we know that that's not exactly how true change works, especially in our field um, in behavioral health and social work, change takes time. And so this is one of those things that we do have to dispel. However, when it does become helpful, we should access the medical model. So for example, I mentioned uh, you know, the gold star for depression uh, uh, therapy is a combination of medication and a therapy like the cognitive behavioral approach. Independently, they both have some limited effectiveness, but in combination with each other, they really tend to help people. So. We do need to know when the medical model is beneficial, but realizing that it's usually in a combination with something that we're doing. 
Another example of helping models and stuff comes from religion, faith, and spirituality. And I would encourage everyone to uh, get to know your clients' uh, faith and spirituality beliefs um, because you can use these and access them in very powerful and meaningful ways. Um, I remember that uh, I had a, a, the first time I, I helped someone who was Muslim, for example, I knew nothing about the Muslim religion, but it was very, very important to this individual. So I went home, I, I bought a copy of the Quran, I read it, um, I, I investigated online and whatnot about the Muslim religion and whatnot. And I was able to use stories. Um, and of course I asked them if I was correct or not <laughs> uh, to really engage that person in further conversation about where we wanted to head with their situation. I believe um, in that situation, I was assisting a, a, a couple who was having a, a marital difficulties. And so accessing their faith uh, really helped in that situation to provide an understanding of what was going on in their relationship by using their religious parables. Um, so religion, and faith and spirituality can be a, 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 a good tool uh, to use when helping others. But it is also important to state um, our own limitations as therapists. If we're not able to see beyond our own faith, our own spirituality, our own religion, when we have somebody come to us who has a different uh, uh, spiritual uh, um, Thing and it's very strong in them, uh, and, but we are invested in our own, that would be kind of the type of individual that you would want to refer to someone else. And of course, we know that uh, spirituality and faith can have some, some helping, uh, helping benefits. We can think of the 12-step program, uh, AA and, and, and those types of programs that really access one's spirituality to help them go get over or come overcome, I should say, some type of addictive behavior. The other uh, type of things that we need to look at as far as helping models is, uh, especially here in the United States, is the conservative versus liberal attitudes towards helping, okay? And, and what I mean by this in, in, in the most, in, in terms of helping, uh, when we look at individuals who are conservatively oriented, there tends to be a belief system that the individual themselves is completely and totally responsible for their behaviors. So their successes and their failures is all them. And they really shouldn't be asking others to come in and fix their problems. And the helping fields, the liberal, more liberal attitude is, is that there's multiple causes to behaviors. So there's the environment, there's uh, uh, maybe um, education issues, there may be um, uh, job issues. There, there's multiple issues that contribute to an individual's behavior, ethnicity, um, culture, all of those things play a role into whether an individual is successful or unsuccessful, okay? 
And again, this is where we have to take stock of our own belief systems. And so there's the job of the therapist to really decide, am I conservative or I'm liberal or am I somewhere in between? And really understanding your client's perspective and whether they feel that they are responsible for everything that has happened to them or do they see that there's other contributions to the reasons why they did something. Now, the reason why this is important is because uh, these conservative liberal attitudes are not easily um, uh, changed. Uh, just like many religious faith and spiritual uh, uh, models are not changed very easy, these aren't changed either. They're, they're very difficult to change someone from being conservative to liberal or liberal to conservative. But for example, if uh, th this is an exaggeration, complete exaggeration, but let's say uh, you're a conservative provider, but you have someone who is very liberal and they come into you and say, you know, I'm in this situation because of my housing, because I was raised in poverty, because all of these things. And you're sitting there as a conservative person and going, well, you were the cause of all those things. So, and you can see the disconnect that can happen between the client and the provider, okay? And again, this is where I'm going to elicit uh, 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 Rogers again. Whereas truly as a provider, we have to be able to come to an acceptance of someone's position on the conservative to liberal continuum, okay? All right, uh, I wanna get into some general models of helping, but I think we will stop there because there's a couple other theories that I need to add because we're doing group work. I need to talk about Adelarian theory. Um, and I also need to expand on the psychoanalysis theory. And so, um, and, and they're not part of these slides right here. So before we get into the general model of helping, um, I wanna stop here. And so I can get the information on Adlerian theory and another theory um, uh, so that we can go on to that. And there was some comments. Uh, I do want to, to bring this up. So uh, many of you in your reflections brought up the holistic approach about how it seems a lot of these theories are very limiting in, 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 in scope. And I'm going to tell you, I completely agree with you. That's why I'm giving you many theories that you can kind of cherry pick what you, what you feel is, is, is part of who you are and who you want to be as a good helper. So um, I wanna make sure that we have a full array of, of, of models that have been used in the group, group uh, approach. So I need to get uh, my slides on Adelarian theory and, and Jungian and um, theory, um, um, and then the, uh, psycho, a couple of psychosocial models. So, um, and then we'll get into a model of general helping, which is just a model of the helping process. And that's when we'll really start talking about different individual skills that we need to develop as to be good helpers, okay? So with that in mind, does any, 